0: Virtuous Men, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify.
1: Welcome to a special bonus episode of Season 3, where we collaborate with our good friends at a brother's creed for some more conversation and commentary. This time we'll look into the theme of underdogs, and each share an inspiring story about overcoming the greatest of odds. Welcome to Part 2.
2: All right. uh, Who's next? Scott. Any uh, preface to your story here, Scott?
0: No, just go ahead and fire away. All right, here we go. The crowd looked massive from down on the field. Most people would have been intimidated by the sight and sound of thousands of people watching your every move. But to the player who had just suited up, it didn't scare him in the slightest. He knew that no matter what happened on the field today, he had nothing to fear. He had dreamt of this moment his whole life, and he was going to give it his all. Daniel Rudy Rudiger was born on August 23, 1948, in Juliet, Illinois. His father worked as a coal miner to support his wife and 14 children. An avid fan of college football, Rudy's father would gather the family around the television on weeknights to watch Notre Dame's Fighting Irish. These gatherings would instill in Rudy a dream of not only attending Notre Dame, but joining the team itself. He attended Juliet Catholic Academy in his high school years. He was a promising athlete, showing skills as a cornerback in his junior and senior seasons. He managed to also gather a significant amount of tackles to his credit, despite weighing a mere 165 pounds and standing 5'6". But academically, Rudy did not fare so well. He discovered that he had dyslexia, which contributed to his poor grades. Unfortunately, he would also catch flack and criticism for his dream to go to Notre Dame. After finishing high school, he decided to join the Navy. He spent two years at sea as a yeoman aboard the USS Robert R. Wilson during the Vietnam War. While on the deck one day, he noticed a lieutenant with a Notre Dame class ring on his finger and mentioned that he wished to go to school there one day. He was surprised to hear words of encouragement instead of the usual negativity he received when sharing his dream. After his military service, he spent the next two years working in his father's power plant. His friend Pete also worked with him, and encouraged him in his Notre Dame dreams. One day, when Rudy and Pete were working, Pete tried unsuccessfully to fix a jam in the gears. It suddenly sprang to life, and Pete was killed in the process. Rudy saw the death of his friend as a sign to finally throw caution to the wind and make his dream a reality. With the aid of his G.I. Bill benefits, he enrolled and was accepted at Indiana's Holy Cross College in 1972. He was able to find a job as a groundskeeper at Notre Dame itself, where he would walk the field that he so longed to play on with the Fighting Irish. He even lived in a dorm room inside the basketball arena during these years. He learned that if he managed to get A's in all of his classes, he would be able to attempt to transfer to Notre Dame after four semesters. Armed with this knowledge, Rudy applied himself with zeal to achieve this goal. He routinely tried to apply, but would receive three rejection notices over the next three semesters. In 1974, Rudy received another letter from Notre Dame after more failed attempts to enroll. This was his last chance before he was no longer eligible. He opened the letter. He was approved. He would be a true Notre Dame man. Now that the first part of his dream had been realized, he had to fight even more uphill battles to make it on the team. Through hard work and determination, Rudy made it onto the scout team, a group that helps the varsity players practice. Three of the coaches guided Rudy in his quest to play a game. Merv Johnson coached Rudy and saw to it that he remained on as a scout team member. Head coach Ara Parsegian promised Rudy he would play before stepping down in 1974. Dan Devine, former head of the Green Bay Packers, replaced him as head coach. Despite not having made the same promise as his predecessor, Devine decided to give Rudy his chance. In November of 1975, Notre Dame was battling Georgia Tech, and this was the last chance Rudy would be able to play as an official member of the Fighting Irish. Devine told Rudy to suit up. After stepping on the field that he had once walked on as a groundskeeper, he would see action in two plays. On the final play, he managed to break through the much heavier players and tackle Georgia Tech quarterback Rudy Allen. The crowd erupted. Rudy's two-fold dream had finally been realized. The players lifted Rudy onto their shoulders and carried him off the field. He would be the first player in Notre Dame's history to receive this honor. The game was the first and last of his football career, yet it would make him a Notre Dame legend for all time. Rudy went on to be a businessman and real estate salesman. His story was made into the beloved 1993 sports film, Rudy, which is considered a classic of the genre. He now works as an author and motivational speaker. To most of us, what Rudy achieved was not a world-changing event. One could very well sum up his story as a kid who got into a school, played a game, and moved on with life. Yet his story continues to endure and inspire decades later. Some say his story is the epitome of what an underdog is. His tale resonates because we have all been Rudy at some point in our lives. We have all had dreams. We have all had obstacles. We have doubts about our goals. But unlike Rudy, many of us have failed to achieve our dreams because we don't believe we can do it, or we believe others when they say we can't do it. As he demonstrated on Notre Dame's field all those years ago, Rudy is not such a man. He shows us we can do it. He shows us we can allow ourselves to not be robbed of our joy. He shows us we can succeed. There are two kinds of people. There are the ones who believe in your dreams, and there are the ones who think it's their job to crush those dreams. Every single day, I've got people coming up to me, thanking me for bringing a little something to their lives. A couple of hours of inspiration to their lives. Veterans and kids and people dying of cancer. You know what? I'll take those people over the joy stealers. My people outnumber the joy stealers a thousand to one. And that's the truth. Rudy Rudiger
2: Loved it, man. I love that message at the end for just like, be someone who's encouraging of people and not a joy stealer. <laughs> well,
0: that's what it comes down to in the end, you know? I mean, like your your dreams do give you joy. And then it seems like there's people that just tell you, no, don't even waste your time. You know, what are you doing this for? And it's like, what do you, no, you're not taking that from me. Mm-hmm. So were they? They're... would they tell them just, you're too
1: small or...
0: Yeah, well and I mean as as you as it said in the episode he was not really what you you know physically he was not really what you think of when you think of a football player you know he was underweight he was skinny he was short you know so and the fact that I mean getting into Notre Dame like a very prestigious school when your grades aren't very good because you have dyslexia so he he definitely had a lot working against him and what I always found so inspiring about that story is that he worked so hard toward this goal and he only played in one game and that was it. So usually with, with stories like this of someone fighting to get somewhere, they tend to get there and stay there for a while. But for him, it was just a game and that was all. Yeah. So it he, just, when he like you to look pr- at it, you look at it and you think it's not a big deal. He just did all this to play a game. Like, why did you waste your time doing all that? But clearly it meant something to him and we all know what that feels like, you know?
3: Yeah. He, he achieved a goal that he had, I mean, and and a huge goal, something that he had as a, as a kid. And I mean, I don't know if his, if his father was alive too, to uh, to when he played in the game, but I mean, imagine his, his dad too, sitting there watching his son play on the, uh, on the Notre Dame football team. I mean, it's just like, that's, that's kind of crazy. It made me think of a, of a quote that says that uh, he who thinks or he who says that he can, and he who says that he cannot are both right. And it's just that, that grit of saying, you know, just keeping going and just keep, if you have a goal, push to it and push through it. And uh, I just, I really like that story.
0: Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Rudy, but there is is a scene where it's kind of later in the story and he is looking at his, his final letter from Notre Dame saying whether he's going to be rejected or not. And he opens it up and sees if it's been approved and he just starts bawling and, and the audience just loses it. And I really want to believe that that's how it was in real life. Like it's one of those cases where. I I so want it to be that way in real life that he just gets that letter after all this rejection and all this work and then boom, he's in. I just, I want to believe that that's how it happened in real life.
2: (laughs) Powerful moment, indeed.
0: And it's also interesting, too, because I couldn't care less about football. You know, but so, and I'm not, I'm not really a school spirit kind of guy. Like you, you know, you talk about schools and teams and I honestly don't care. I'm just going to say that flat out. I'm not interested, (laughs) but, but it's the story of this guy, you know? So that's really what it, that's what I resonate with. Like, I don't care about the football. I don't care about the school, but this guy who had a dream, you know, I think that's what makes his story so relatable to people across whether you're into football or not. Like you're, you connect to it because of that.
3: Yeah, yep. what is it that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger would always say, don't listen to the naysayers? He said, people will always say, oh, you can't do that, or you, you can't do that because it's never been done before. And he was like, I always loved doing that because then I know that I'm the first person that's ever done it.
1: <laughs> it's just, it's cool. <laughs> thanks, oh, for, yeah. thanks for giving me motivation.
0: Yeah, or it's like that line in The Matrix where they're getting ready to rescue Morpheus and Trinity says, Neo, no one's ever done anything like this before. And he says, that's why it's going to work. Yeah, there you yeah. go.
2: That, that's that's why in, in our intro uh we have uh, a thing of uh from Lost the the show Lost. Uh, there's a guy in that show his name is John Locke and he's in a wheelchair and and he says, you know, his famous thing. He says, "Don't tell me what I can't do." Ah, is that and what that's from? I was yeah. wondering
0: what that was from. I I I forgot to ask <laughs> you guys last time we were together, but I was like, "What is that line from your intro? The don't ever tell me what I can't do ever." Yeah. I don't know where that was from.
3: It, there, there's one moment where he wants to go on like an Australian like walkabout or something like that where you have to like hunt and survive and all sorts kind of stuff. But he's in a wheelchair and the guy's like, I'm sorry, sir, but you just can't do it. And he's like, Don't tell me what I can't do. And he's just like, That's his whole thing is that I can do anything. This is not a disability. It's, you know, I can do whatever I want. And it's a cool character.
2: Huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So and I love that tenacity too. It's like, you know, don't tell me what I can't do because you don't know like, what i'm capable Mm -hmm. of that kind of mentality so and yeah
0: and he definitely except for when my kids
2: get that except for when my kids get that attitude then i'm like yes i can tell you what i (laughs) can you could do that when you pay your own bills yeah Yeah,
1: right (laughs) dad i've been listening to your podcast and uh... (laughs) yeah exactly
2: (laughs) so well great that was that was so 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 awesome thanks for sharing that one with us you bet you bet
3: all right i think uh i think jared you're next
2: yeah, yeah, so... Cap uh, this
0: off. Go out, go out swinging.
2: Yeah. Like I said, m- mine is also another a, a battle one. Uh, this one's a little bit earlier. So uh, I'll go ahead and roll this here. We can talk about All it right. after. In the late 1800s, as the British Empire continued its global expansion into Africa, there's one battle that stands out. It was the Battle of Islandawana. Sir Henry Fryer was appointed High Commissioner of the Southern Africa, and his job was to implement a previously known scheme to confederate and subjugate the people of the kingdom of Zululand. The king of the Zulu people was named Sechwayo. A seasoned warrior and experienced politician, Sechwayo first sought to make peace with the British Empire, but peace talks soon evaporated when Sir Fryer issued an ultimatum that the Zulu kingdom must dismantle its entire military, amongst other things, within 30 days or else. With this obvious provocation of unrealistic demands, King Sechwayo refused, much like King Leonidas of old, to lay down his weapons. The day of the battle was a sunny day in late January 1879. The Zulu army numbered 20,000 men against an army of 1,800 British troops. British soldiers, despite their inferior numbers, were equipped with modern weaponry. Their artillery cannons and repeating lever-action rifles provided a level of confidence against the spears and cowhide shields of the Zulu warriors. Sechwayo sent the 20,000 strong men Zulu Impi or Zulu Force from the near present day Ulundi on January 17th across the White Umfolzi River with the following command to his warriors.
1: March slowly, attack at dawn and eat up the red soldiers.
2: The morning of the 22nd of January, the British forces under the command of Lord Chelmsworth left the fortified British camp. On the hill of Islandawana to seek out the Zulu warriors in the field and win a quick, decisive victory. Chelmsworth left behind 1,300 men to defend the camp and left Lieutenant Colonel Henry Pouline in charge of the camp's defense. Pouline was an administrator with no frontline or command experience on a campaign. While Chelmsworth was in the field seeking the Zulu force, the entire Zulu army had outmaneuvered him, moving behind his force with the intention of attacking the British army the next day. They had successfully evaded Chelmsworth and drawn his attention to a smaller force of the Zulu army. That same day, a few British scouts, upon chasing a few Zulu soldiers into a nearby valley, discovered the bulk of the 20,000 Zulu force sitting in total silence. Once discovered, the entire Zulu force leapt to the offensive. Even though the Indunas, or the troop leaders, lost control over the advance, the warriors' training allowed the Zulu troops to form their standard attack formation on the run, with their battle line deployed in reverse of its intended order. The Zulu army pursued the scout force and was met in the field a short distance from the British camp by the remaining soldiers sent to defend the camp. The Zulu army formed a formation similar to the head of a bull with men spanning out on each side like the horns to outflank the British army the main Zulu force was in the center where the figurative head of the bull is. The main British artillery was focused on the force in the middle of the bull's head but the left horn of the soldiers began to outflank the British force. This caused the British to order a retreat back to camp which is where everything devolved into hand-to-hand combat. As the British soldiers retreated to the camp for their final stand at around 2:30 in the afternoon A unique apocalyptic scene emerged one British officer described it in these words in a few seconds we distinctly saw the guns fired again one after other sharp this was done several times a pause and then a flash flash the Sun was shining on the camp at the time and then the camp looked dark just as if a shadow had passed over it the guns did not fire after that and in a few minutes
1: all the tents had disappeared Similarly, a Zulu warrior described it in this way. The sun turned black in the middle of the battle. We could still see it of ours, or should have thought we had been fighting till evening. Then we got into the camp, and there was a great deal of smoke and fire. Afterwards, the sun came out bright again. The air was filled with smoke from cannon and musket fire. The sounds
2: of men dying in hand-to-hand combat echoed across the open field when the midday sun suddenly turned black zulu lore claims that God himself closed his eyes during the battle, for he could not bear to look on the horrors that mankind was inflicting upon itself. Now fighting in nearly dark conditions, the Zulu warriors, a highly superstitious people, took this as a sign that God would not hold these deaths against them, and this invoked even more fierce fighting. Another Zulu warrior recalled this event as the battle reached a fever pitch.
1: The tumult and the firing was wonderful. Every warrior shouted, "Usudu" as he killed anyone? And the sun got very dark like night with the smoke.
2: At this same time, in a battle not far from the main skirmish, Zulu commander Bilini Wasadi, who was thought to possess great mystical power from the sun, was defeated. This fact only adds to the mysterious nature of this battle. The full effect of the partial solar eclipse that occurred that day is unknown, but it certainly introduced a new challenge in the battlefield for both sides. As the British forces began to run low on ammo and were surrounded by the Zulu warriors, the fighting began to be mostly hand-to-hand combat, which evened the playing field between the two forces. The British soldiers fought back-to-back as the Zulu warriors surrounded and entered the encampment. One Zulu account of the battle relates a single-handed fight by a guard of Chelmsworth's tent, a big Irishman, who kept the Zulus' back with his bayonet until he was speared and the General's Union flag was captured. In the end, an estimated 1,300 British and African auxiliary forces were killed, and about 2,000 Zulus were estimated to be killed as well. Sechwayo, sensing that there was a vast number of men absent after the battle, asked where the rest of the regiments were. When told that they were dead, the king prohibited his people from traditional celebrations following such a victory. Instead, he called for a time of mourning and cried out in agony. A spear
1: has been thrust into the belly of our nation. There are not enough tears to mourn the dead.
2: These words ultimately ended up being true as the Zulu kingdom fell months later when the British reinforcements arrived. The Battle of Isandlwana was nevertheless a victory of the underdog Zulu people. The British General Chelmsworth had underestimated the disciplined, well-led, well-motivated, and confident Zulus. The failure to secure an effective defensive position, the poor intelligence on the location of the main Zulu army, Chelmsworth's decisions to split his force in half, and Zulu's tactical exploitation of the terrain and the weakness of the British formation all combined to prove catastrophic for the troops at izan The ultimate defeat of the British force in this battle was described by author Saul David as the British Army's most humiliating defeat. Make it a unique underdog story and one for the history books.
0: Yeah, that is definitely one for the history books, I gotta say. Yeah,
1: one of many uh, underdog defeats perpetrated on the British Army, right?
2: Yeah, I, I, that one was just wild. You know, you go up against a force that just has spears and cowhide shields. when wow. you're Going up against that, cannons and automatic that, repeating rifles.
3: Yeah, they had
2: no firearms whatsoever. They had a few muskets, uh, you know, old school muskets. But yeah. these guys had like lever action, you know, Henry rifles, kind of a thing. Wow! Um, oh my gosh. So where? So, so where did you hear
0: about that story?
2: I just was kind of looking around online, and I found it, and I'd never heard about it before, and I just said, wow, and I think that the whole aspect of the, you know, the solar, the partial solar eclipse during the middle of the battle, and how it just invigorated the fighting and everything, I mean, can you just imagine being in that scenario where everything goes black, and you have these, you know, it just invigorated some of the soldiers, and I'm sure scared the heck out of some other soldiers, you know, kind of wild.
1: I think there's a there's a movie. It's an older it's an older movie, but I think it's actually called Zulu, and it's about yeah. that that model, You're right. With I was Sir gonna Michael say Cain.
3: that those, uh, yeah. yeah, those uh, Zulu warriors, I think were pretty fierce. I mean, they're pretty ferocious in what they did. I mean, and they, and they were well trained too. I think they're some of the uh, if you look historically like elite soldiers. I think the, the Zulu warriors were up there. For sure.
0: Yeah, I think you tend to think of like like tribal warriors. You tend to not think of them in terms of modern military, where there's really strict training regiments and it's all really modernized. But you, so you tend to think the tribal warriors didn't have that, or they had a more primitive way of fighting. But you look at stories like that, and no, clearly, clearly these people were more than capable of taking on anybody.
2: Right. Yeah, especially when they got you know discovered, and then they had to form their battle formations and everything was all just haphazard and, and and but they were able to do it in reverse order uh you know while they were you know to, to get the british on the run
1: and uh, <laughs> yeah
0: it probably didn't help yeah. too that they knew the lay of the land too and the british were likely not familiar with it so they clearly were masters of their environment so they could definitely have that on their side
2: yeah, just the overconfidence, you know, the British too. It's like, well, it's just gonna go out and finish this today. You know, I want to be home by lunch, kind of a, kind of thing. <laughs> and it's just like, all right, you're here.
3: well. And then the one guy, he was like, oh, I'm gonna take 500 of the soldiers. I'm just gonna go find their army and destroy it, right? The the head yeah. guy, didn't Yeah, he, yeah Well, he, he took he, half the soldiers. Yeah, out yeah, he field. left and left. He left and just was like, yeah, you guys take care of the home base. And then little did he know that
2: left, left, left to the guy, he did had never no experience at all. He's just like, you take care of the base. And he's like, but uh. You know, he's just like, just stay, just stay here, <laughs> right?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's an
1: amazing story. What what uh, time period was this? Was this like uh, this early was like eighteen hundreds,
2: like mid eighteen hundreds? Okay, okay. okay. I, I think it was
1: mid eighteen hundreds.
2: So, uh, yeah, and it's interesting. You you kind of look at both sides. You know, the Zulus don't have a lot of of, of story from the Zulus. You know, you, eventually, like I said, the British came in and with lots of reinforcements, and ended up wiping them out. Uh, and then, like, taking over the country. Uh, interestingly, though, Szechuayo, he was uh, banished from the country. He went back to London for a while. And then, actually, many years later, the English tried to bring him back in as president because they couldn't manage the people of that area. So, they tried to bring him back in. I, I don't think that mm-hmm. worked out very well. But, uh mm-hmm. yeah. wow. But it was, it was kind of interesting, just the, the whole, you know, that whole thing and how they fought against... Uh, a tyrant.
3: I just love the story of uh, just underdogs. I've, I've always been for the underdog and um, just coming from, you know, someone, whether it's a country or a team or an individual person that is looking into the face of a beast and, and, you know, probably in their heart is saying, I don't know how this is going to happen. Or I don't know how this is going to work or how we're going to win or how we're going to hold ourselves up or or, or how I'm going to get on this team. Um, but being able to look forward and to, to look at the mission in front of you and execute, uh, not everybody can do that. But when it does happen, it makes for some great stories. Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, well, and that's the great thing about underdog stories, too, is that they're, regardless of the context, they're always universal. Like, everybody can look at an underdog story, and even if they don't know anything about Zulu history or Notre Dame football or anything like that, like, you can always identify with that struggle and that whole feeling of, I'm facing, like you said, facing a beast. I think all of us can relate to that.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think... Uh... I mean, that's why we watch sports right i mean who wants to just watch a game where you know who's going to win and you know the, the the outcome is perfectly predictable you know you like those games where somehow some way the team who you know shouldn't even be on the same field is somehow the team who wins and i think that's why that's why i watch sports i love to see that
2: yeah i, I, I totally agree and what's funny what's funny this might seem like an oxymoron but i feel like as americans like i i feel like it's in as an american it's in my blood to kind of you know, the, the the american revolution was a giant a great underdog story you know going up yes. against the british empire and so i feel like that's the history that we have uh and we, we actually Ethan are actually thinking about doing a little bit of a episode series on that and like why that was so impactful and what made that and how that was so different from many other countries that tried to do that at the time. But I I just feel like that's part of our history. And even though now we're like a giant superpower, you know, we're not really the underdog anymore, but I feel like that's part of our history. And I'm very proud to be an American because, well, for a lot of reasons, but that's because of it, because we, you know, stood up against a tyrant and said, no, we're doing things differently. And the way that we did that was, was pretty unique and pretty different.
0: Yeah, it definitely inspires you looking at it through the modern lens and thinking, wow, like what what kind of battle do I have where I could be put in those positions to test myself? I feel like it also goes back to just I feel like inherently there in men in particular, there's this whole desire to be tested and to face a test, whether whether you know it or not. I feel like every man has that to some degree. So I think hearing an underdog story, especially like you said, like the American Revolution, you you kind of put yourself in that situa- situation and think, what would I have done? Would I have fought or would I have gone home and just let you know followed orders or done whatever you know? So yeah. Uh, I, yeah, at least I find myself thinking of those things. Yeah,
3: it's interesting in the in the Winter War story that I told about Finland. You know, after after the three months, they ended up um, really. They ended up seceding some of the t- border territory anyway that Russia wanted. But the thing is, is that, and, and this went back to there was many uh, historical professionals were saying, their historians were saying that Russia didn't want just the borderland. They would have taken the entire country. And they would have set up what they, what they were going to call the um, uh, the Finland communist puppet. And that they would just use them to control, you know, borderlands into Germany or whatever else it may be. And um, it was that, that, yeah, if, if they would have just said at the beginning, okay, yeah, you can have some, then, then Russia would have just, you know, you give a mouse a cookie and they want to take the whole thing. And so, but them, by saying, no, we will not give in, and they put up this massive fight, they were able to keep, and, and then at the end, Russia was just kind of like, you know, okay, fine, just give us this little, t- we'll take this little tiny portion and then we'll just leave you alone because we don't want to fight anymore. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, at the end, they still lost, right? But they, it would have been much worse if they wouldn't have have fought.
0: Right, right. Well, it's, it's sort of like, well, you you know, you're a, you're a huge superpower. We're just a tiny little country. So it'd be easy for us to just hand it over to you. But no, you're not getting it without a fight. Whether you, you might get it, it's probably likely you will get it, but you're not getting it without a fight.
1: It's all about the doing it on your terms, right? Right. The, the yeah. outcome might be the same, but you're not going to force me to just give up. I'm going to do this with yeah. a fight
0: and, and you're going to know about it. It's going to cost you something. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. Like this is going to be, if you get what you want, it's going to be hard earned and we're going to make sure of that. Yeah. Which is a heck of a lot more noble than saying, yeah, I don't want to get my hands dirty. Here you go. <laughs> Like, where's, yeah. the no, where's the nobility in that? Where's the honor in yeah. that? Where, where do
3: right. I say it? You give them an inch <laughs> yeah. and they'll take a mile.
0: Exactly. Oh, gosh. Plenty yeah. of that going on. <laughs> and, and,
2: and, yeah, there is plenty of that going on. And, and, <laughs> I, 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 I've been thinking about that a lot recently, you know, especially with everything that's going on. It's just like, you know, you know nobility, honor, uh, you know, at what point do you say enough is enough? You know, at what point? Where do you draw your line in the sand? Uh, you know, you talked about earlier, like the American Revolution. You're like, would I have been someone who was like, yeah, let's do this, or was would I have been someone who was like, eh, you know, the British aren't that bad, you know, or it's not that, it's not that terrible, you know, it's it's okay. So I think about that a lot, and I think about my forefathers and the sacrifices that they made for for me and the, so that the country that I can live in today, and. I think what sacrifices are sh- should I be willing to take for my kids? Yeah. And, um, you know, that's something that weighs on my mind, especially nowadays with a lot of the, um, I feel liberties that have been taken that are, that are being taken from us. Uh, you know, we need to be very conscious of that, uh, right. in the United States, yeah. I mean, in some other countries, it's even worse, but, uh, you know, yeah I, point, I think i think yeah
0: we're we're in a time where we're getting a taste of what other countries go through i feel like i feel like america is really facing that right now like in our modern age we're getting a little glimpse of that right now and a lot of people are showing where they stand you know yeah well it, it kind of harkens back to that really powerful veterans day image that you guys had on your instagram like yeah. that that was like when you were talking that's instantly what i thought of and i'm thinking wow I wonder if we could be in that position too of here's what we sacrificed for our kids and everything. I, I, like you said, like probably, I would imagine as a father, you'd probably think about those things a lot too. Like, like you said, what am I willing to give up for them to have a good life? Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's like, well, you know, it's okay if it's happening to me, but like, what if somebody's trying to push this on my kids or what if, what if, you know, if, if they take, you know, take an inch, you know, they'll take a mile. Like what was it? (laughs) <laughs> you know, two weeks to slow, slow, the spread ended up in like yep. two years, you know, basically
0: yeah, how so many weeks like, are we in there? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, just me, like, just, just keep giving us more power and then we'll get back to normal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> two so years it's, later.
2: It's tough. I mean, I want my kids to be in a good spot, you know, and I want them to have freedoms and liberties. And so yeah, at what point do I say stop? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think it's a, at the end of the day, we need to realize it may not be such a big thing on its own but what it comes after that
0: and when you set that precedence what comes after that and it's a slippery slope so yeah uh, we're yeah. we're too trapped in the present moment we just don't really think about the future
2: yeah and i think that sometimes as in living in a modern society we forget that we live in a violent world and yeah. we, we, we forget it's like we weren't around during world war ii we were around during a twenty-year war in Afghanistan that would just happened in some foreign land that we saw on TV that was just like a movie, you know. So we forget what it's like, and people who have never been to another country, it's even easier to forget what it's like. And so, you know, people, countries do terrible things throughout the history of the world. There are countries within lifetimes of people who are alive who have done awful things. They're right now. I mean, there are like concentration camps in China, and you know, you think about what, but people so easily forget that people so easily forget, like fighting for what's right or fighting for your justice. And they're like, well, what are you going to do? You know? And and it's like, well, you know, what did our ancestors do? What do people do who fight for justice? And it's not, I'm not advocating violence or anything that I'm just saying that like there's people, sometimes people think that those things can't happen because well, you know, that's not happening where I live. And it's like, well, it could. You know, someone could yeah. march in here and take over our country. Haven't you seen Red Dawn? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly.
0: Oh, yeah. Good luck. Well, I I, def, I sort of have come to believe over the years that I feel like traveling to a foreign country should be a requirement for every American citizen just so they can see how good we have it here. Huh. Yeah, but before you criticize, see what it's like everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Like just, but just that doesn't a, mean go to like, a third world country and just and yeah, then tell your, country, yeah. and then see if you're going to say those things about America again. But
3: yeah. that doesn't mean like go to a five star resort in the Bahamas for right. a week. And,
0: yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. yeah, like if you go to Jamaica, stay away from the resorts or something like that, or or Mexico or somewhere like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, those are very good points for sure.
3: This has been great. I think all of these underdog stories were excellent and just not only the, the theatrical nature of them, but the message that they presented as well. Um, you yeah. know, we love getting together with you guys and doing these collaborations. They're just really fun. We love putting these stories together and, and part of, you know, our podcast is, is telling those experiences and exploring new things. And I know you guys as well tell some excellent stories of some great men. Um, and I think these
0: were excellent examples of those. Yeah, that was a good suggestion for doing that. That very good suggestion.
2: Well, cool, guys. Well, thanks again for your time. Uh, it was great doing an episode with you. And to everyone out there, you know, check these guys out. Uh, Virtu- the Virtuous Men podcast. Uh, we're going to put links in the show notes, of course. Us, we're, we're a Brothers Creed podcast. And uh, both great shows. So go give them a listen. Indeed.
1: All indeed, right. Indeed. Thanks, guys. Yeah, Thank you guys a lot.
0: Yep, well, take this. care. looking forward to Can the next one.
1: one yes of course <laughs> this episode of Virtuous Man was written and recorded by Jamie Adams and Scott Einig and featured Ethan and Jared Thomas of A Brother's Creed
0: thank you for joining us for part 2 of this bonus episode and thank you for joining us for season 3 stay tuned for season 4 in summer 2022 where we will continue to discover and explore the lives of Virtuous Men